Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 208, The Battle of Shanghai, Japanese Reinforcements. Last time, the Japanese Expeditionary Force had consolidated most of its gains along the coast. Now was the time to push west, to give the invaders the room they needed to take Shanghai proper, as well as destroy the Chinese defenders in front of them. Yet Chiang Kai-shek had his troops pull back to form, hopefully, an impenetrable wall that would disallow the Japanese both objectives. To further this defensive goal, Cheng took control of the defense himself in mid-September, believing he was bringing a decisive element to the war. But then his inexperience showed itself, as he divided up the front into three zones, the left, central, and right wings. This at a time when close coordination would be needed to halt the more advanced and better organized attackers. As for the foreigners in the nearby settlements, they strove mightily to get on with normal lives. The Shanghai Football Association convened its annual meeting. The British continued to drink tea and play tennis, thinking they were relatively safe. The two movie theaters continued showing the latest releases. Of course, there was a curfew now, so most activity ended at 11.30. Still, the foreigners recognized some element of reality, as most foreign countries sent in extra troops to guard their expats. The Japanese allowed this, as, again, the last thing they needed was more trouble with additional countries for now. The Italians sent in some 800 grenadiers of Savoy, fresh from their conquest of Abyssinia. The United States brought in 1,435 more Marines. As for the Chinese locals that remained, they tried, to the best of their ability, to get on with Shanghai's number one priority— making money. War, in a certain light, provides opportunities of all kinds. But what the foreigners could not ignore were the tens of thousands of refugees. They flocked to the foreign settlements seeking food and shelter. During this time, some ideals could not or would not be jettisoned. Several foreigners tried to band together and create safe zones for all comers, much like the Kellogg-Bryan Peace Pact of 1928, which attempted to outlaw war as a way to settle disputes. These decent-hearted people honestly believed they could create an area that would be free from death and destruction. Yet when the Japanese were approached to honor this, they made no promises, as this idea was totally alien to the way of the warrior culture which dominated Japan. Though the Japanese held Lodian, its westernmost possession, there remained within its midst a pocket of resistance. Just south of the town was a large villa, surrounded by a large white wall, obviously to keep the locals out. But because of that wall, it was called the White House. Of course, its owner was long gone, his riches providing him no more protection than anyone else. Within the villa was a unit of Chinese defenders, and they, through all of this fighting, had managed to deny it to the invaders. Because of its position and its walls, 
the Chinese had wisely brought in men and an impressive array of artillery. And because of its former owner, the villa was well stocked with food and water. The Chinese defenders had held out for 27 days so far. But just outside those walls, entrenched, was the Japanese 44th Regiment, a.k.a. the Kochi Regiment. It had been their responsibility to take the White House. Yet each time the troops tried to cross the 70 yards, the distance between their trench system and the villa's walls, scores of men were shot down by the defenders with their machine guns. The 44th Regiment's commander, Wachi Takachi, who had gained fame with his sword-wielding antics during the taking of Lodien, now could only stare despondently at the walls before him. Needing to come at the villa in some other way, a tunnel was begun on September 19th. Just four days later, that tunnel was 35 yards long. Hence, on the next attack, Wachi's men would only be exposed for half the distance. This attack commenced on September 23rd, but this day was no ordinary day for the Japanese. On this day of the lunar calendar, the emperor back in Tokyo would worship at the shrine of his ancestors, which connected the Japan of today with its glorious past. It reinforced that the Japanese, civilian and soldier alike, were not only different from the rest of the world, but special, unique, superior. So motivated, the men of the 44th vowed to capture the villa this day. On that afternoon of September 23rd, the Japanese began with an artillery attack. Then their planes flew over to bomb the structure and its surrounding walls. Only then did the attack proper commence. Out from the trench works did the Japanese tanks emerge, and just behind them was their infantry support. The Chinese defenders had seen this many times in the last 27 days, so were already aiming their machine guns at the armored beasts. No, the shells would not disable the tanks, but perhaps several of the soldiers behind them could be taken down. The attackers gambled with the lives of their men behind the tanks by allowing a few seconds to go by in order to get the defenders to focus solely on the coming attack. Only then did the other infantry troops emerge from the end of the tunnel and make for the wall. Because of the noise created by both groups of fighters and their weapons, the Chinese troops behind the wall didn't notice the closer threat at first. But even when they did, it was too late to swing the guns away from the armored vehicles. The men who had used the tunnel reached the walls, carrying bags of explosives. Not wasting any time, fuses were lit, and the bags were placed next to the wall, and the men scurried to either side of the hissing explosives. Seconds later, several large explosions left sizable holes in the wall. Even before the smoke cleared, the Japanese troops closest to the walls poured through, only to be followed by the men who were behind the tanks. Now that the attackers were inside, the defenders' biggest assets, the open space beyond the walls, the walls themselves, and finally their gun emplacements, were of little use. Within two and a half hours, the White House belonged to the men of the 44th Regiment. Their honor and that of their commander was saved.
As this attack was only a part of a larger offensive south of Lodien, there was other good news for the Japanese. Instead of a general offensive, it was decided the 11th Division would push south of Lodien, and as this attack was to be along a smaller front, it would have more punching power. The division's armor was massed, like the men and the planes that would be flying over, to take out any anti-tank weapons that were deployed. As this assault was very much like the coming Blitzkrieg of the Germans, the attack succeeded in pushing back the Chinese in several areas. As the bulk of the 11th Division pushed south, the Shigeto Detachment covered its right flank by guarding the areas north and directly west of Lodian. And yet the day was not perfect for the attackers. The men of the Shigeto, newly arrived, had not seen prolonged serious fighting, and as such their morale was still high, as was their desire to punish the impudent Chinese. So instead of maintaining their defensive line, the men moved out, hoping to do their own driving back of the enemy. But instead, they lost many men and gained little ground for it. When General Matsui learned of their 200 casualties, he angrily wrote, They can't go on blindly attacking like this. With the attack in general going well around Leodian, the 3rd Japanese Division, a bit further south, made for the closest enemy positions nearby, mainly around Leohong, about 4 miles or 6.4 kilometers south by southeast of Leodian. Leohong had been the main objective for the Japanese troops who had moved out from Baoshan weeks ago, but they had not gone very far. But with the recent Chinese retreat, it was now within the Japanese grasp, if they could push back the superior force within and around it. And here's where Chiang Kai-shek's conservation of his better weapons hurt the cause. After all, there were some 25 Chinese divisions along the front, but those men would either not be given the best weapons to hand, or ordered not to fire them, as positions would be given away. Only then to have the attackers, with their better guns and planes, annihilate the defenders' artillery and anti-air guns that were grouped together for mutual protection. But again, they were rarely ordered to fire, which meant that when the Japanese third came at this part of the defensive line, the defenders were practically operating alone. What made this offensive different from the ones of the past was that when the Japanese now obtained new territory, they refused to give it up when darkness came. The Chinese troops were still brave, but they were not being sent out at night to harass the enemy lines or to get into a stronger position. Their officers were playing more conservative, which changed the course of the war. So the invaders began to hold at night what they captured during the day. As for the Chinese, they, in fact, began a policy completely opposite to their previous nighttime raids. On September 25th, when the Japanese rested, they had been gaining ground for the last two days. The defenders pulled back another mile during the night, and did so well, it took two more days before the Japanese were fully aware of it. As the Japanese rested, glorying in their latest local victories, their reinforcements 
had already begun to arrive. First, there was the 101st Division that came ashore on September 22nd. Five days later, the 9th Division landed, and both were sent to strengthen the left flank of the 3rd Division. True, it may be that the Japanese would not try to swing around the enemy on their far right flank, which would take them into the foreign settlements, but that did not negate the possibility that the Chinese, with their superior numbers, from trying something similar. On October 1st, the 13th Division arrived. Now the Japanese had five divisions on land. This gave them some 90,000 men against the 200,000 Chinese soldiers before them. But the attackers still had their superior arms, their planes, and their warships. In all, it was finally time for the big push. As the latest Japanese attack had gained them the territory to the south and southeast of Lodian, it was decided by Matsui to launch a major push to the south that would cross the Wusong Creek and make for the Suzhou Creek, which was located due west of the foreign settlements and downtown Shanghai. If this could be achieved, not only would the Japanese forces be that much closer to Shanghai proper, but the invaders would have control of a much larger area, so much that a pincer movement could then be used to surround the bulk of the Chinese defenders. As they had learned from their German military advisors, only by surrounding a larger enemy force could it be annihilated. Before this moment, having only two divisions on land had not been enough, but now with five divisions, it could finally be implemented. General Matsui had made his plans known to his staff and commanding officers at the end of September. Going from west to east, the 9th, 3rd, and 101st Infantry Divisions would push south across the Wusong Creek, just south of where the lucky 3rd Division had been able to push out west from Baoshan and then Yanghang towards Liaohang, itself just south of Lodian. After that, the village of Dachong would be reached and incorporated into the Japanese fold. Then, continuing south, the attackers would make for the Suzhou Creek, which would bring them parallel with downtown Shanghai. If this could be made a reality, then those Chinese defenders still in Shanghai would be forced to retreat due south, or be cut off from any assistance Chiang Kai-shek could give them. And just like that, the sixth largest city in the world, the largest in China, would belong to the Japanese, and the nationalists taught a valuable lesson. On the morning of October 1st, the three infantry divisions pushed south, and by October 5th reached the Wusong Creek. As the Japanese had planes overhead and artillery to support their push, the 101st Division, on their far left, the Chinese far right, furthest east, had crossed before sunset, or rather, half of the 101st had. The Wusong Creek was misnamed, as it was 300 feet across, and besides, its wooden southern bank allowed the Chinese to set up isolated machine gun positions. There was still work to do, but the Japanese had made it across. Just before the Japanese launched their attack, Matsui had condensed the front to be used by his three divisions to just three miles, 
meaning each division had less than half the length they should have, according to the Japanese field manual. But the general needed this offensive to succeed, so packed the men in tight. The Chinese detected this and shortened their own lines to match, which meant that whatever was to come, it would be bloody, with many casualties for both sides. This was, of course, to the advantage of the defenders, as Chang would have happily traded a Chinese life for every Japanese life lost. As the attack started, the Chinese were right away forced to give up territory, but for tactical reasons only. The road that ran south by southeast out of Lodian first went through Liaohong before going another three miles to Dachang. Until the attack, Liaohong had been in Chinese hands, but there was no way it could be held, and the Japanese stopped from heading south. So the town was abandoned, which became Japan's second most western possession. Now that the Wusong Creek was crossed, it was time for another Chinese retreat. But as the Japanese were hard upon them, it could not be done secretly at night. So starting that first night of the offensive, the Chinese began to pull back, but were forced to fight as they did so, as the attackers stayed with them, having learned a lesson from previously. But for the next few days, the Chinese pulled back faster than the aggressors could follow them. This gave the Chinese time to set up their new defensive line at the town of Da Chang, about halfway between the Wusong River and the Suzhou River. And this line stretched to the west, just past the road that came from Lodian. It wasn't pretty, but the Japanese attack kept moving south, ever further away from Wusong Creek. It didn't turn out to be the life-saving quick strike that General Matsui had hoped for, but the job was getting done. As each day went by, Shanghai proper, to the southeast, was becoming more isolated. On October 11th, Chang held a meeting of the Third War Zone. What was to be done to stop, or at least slow down, the enemy attack? Chen Cheng, commander of the left flank, hence his men were not involved in this battle, recommended reinforcing his wing, which would allow him to launch a fresh attack at Lodian. This would cause the enemy to pull back some of their men, thus taking the steam out of the attack south. But this was shot down, as it was believed the Japanese defenses at Lodian were enough to resist on their own. Hence, no troops would be brought back. All it would do was get more men killed, and the Chinese losses to date had been shocking enough. Then came another suggestion. General Bai Chongzi from the south, who was serving in an informal advisory role, suggested that as they controlled the area to the west of the current fighting, perhaps two large forces should be sent in to hit the Japanese on their far right flank, one just above Wusong Creek, the other, just below it. If this could be done, then the area to the north of the creek would be stabilized, and regaining control of the land to the south would bring a halt to Matsui's advance. Of course, the first question asked was, where were these men supposed to come from? But Bai had his answer ready. Currently en route were four divisions from South China's Guangxi province. 
they would soon be here. The German advisors did not like this oversimplistic, wishful thinking of a plan. They had watched as the smallest decision seemed to take hours of discussion to decide. In their world, there was a clear line of command. A decision was made by whoever was on top, and his orders were to be carried out. But not so here. To the Germans' thinking, the plan, which called for massed troops to be in close proximity to the enemy, would eventually fall apart, as reactionary decisions had to be made. The result would be the destruction of those four divisions. Yes, China had many soldiers, but there was a limit. However, Chiang Kai-shek liked the idea of a large, vengeful Chinese army raining destruction down on the enemy. The suggestion was made into an order. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the, the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.